Good morning, good morning. It's the second Tuesday of the month, 10 o'clock. Time for Boat Talk here on Community Radio, WERU-FM, Blue Hill 89.9, 99.9 in Bangor. Boat Talk is a, uh, well, it's usually a call-in show for people contemplating things naval with your rusty anchors. Mike Joyce and Alan Sprague, two old boat carpenters who, uh, if they were pressed to make a canoe, would probably be thwarted. Good one. (laughs) Alan's the punny one. We have a special guest today, speaking of canoes, we're going to be getting around to in a little bit. Uh, I need to tell you right in the very beginning, though, that, as I said, it was usually a a call-in radio show. Today, our um, in-studio phone-to-radio converter gizmo is on the fritz, so we're unable to uh, take calls to the studio, but if you would like to use the uh, internet and just uh, email any questions to weru.org, just uh, put info in the uh, in the subject line, and the, those questions will be taken into the studio. Um, the phone's not working this morning, but the flasher that tells us it's ringing won't stop. And well, the flasher, I believe, is the pledge line number, and that is working because we are in the midst of yeah. a, a fundraiser this week, and the pledge number is one 800 6436273 if you'd like to call up and contribute to uh, this great community discussion that we have here at WERU. It's like a uh, kind of a lightning storm in here and uh don't know if there's any possibility of a seizure from that repetitive flashing light but it's uh something anyway. Well, yeah, if, if I fall over backwards that'll be the excuse. Yeah. I'd like to start with a couple of shout-outs this morning. Uh a couple birthday shout-outs. It's a uh it's the birthday of uh, Captain Bernie, better known as Sonny from Penobscot. Oh, and, happy birthday, Sonny. Yeah, Captain Bernie uh, is uh, somebody who we'd uh, also like to talk to uh, sometime on Boat Talk. He shipped out after uh, a little disillusioned after the Vietnam thing and uh, shipped out and realized that the best job on the boat was the captain. And in uh, 10 or 11 years, he was the captain up through the hawse pipe and uh, worked uh, oil supply tugs and has uh, been everywhere and done about everything. So uh, not much interest there, but we'd like to talk to him sometime anyway. Happy birthday, Sonny. And uh, Alan Sprague, I understand from my Facebook, you've got a birthday coming up too. Yeah, um, but next Saturday. But Yeah, happy happy birthday, Flounder. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, thank you. Didn't get you nothing. Yeah, I wasn't sure I was going to have one this year, but you caught me. Yeah. So there we are, and uh, we like to start Boat Talk with a uh, uh, going through the uh, clippings from the last month. I don't have any this oh. time. How about that? Well, I have one little mental clipping from a friend of mine, a shrimper, who has said that finally in this area the shrimp are starting to come in. seemed like a real delay this year as to when the shrimp – they were really early last year, if you'll remember – and uh, unfortunately, when they come in late like this, that means the quota has already been uh, pretty well consumed. So there's going to be a limited amount of time that the fishermen, shrimpers in this area are going to be able to collect. But good luck. A lot of uh, controversy about the uh, biomass of the shrimp and how, what's the allowable take. Uh, scallops are having a hard time with scallops this year as well. 
Um, had some of uh, them little shrimpies just recently. Ain't they delicious, though? Uh, they really are good. <laughs> I'm having some tonight. Speaking of notes, we have no uh, material on uh, leading the news this morning. Also, there's a Carnival Line cruise ship adrift in the uh, Gulf of Mexico. It's about to be towed back to Alabama. My neighbors just got off a Carnival Line cruise, uh, Cozumel, among other places. They had a great time. Uh, but it's fascinating. You take this luxury vessel. It's bigger than the Titanic. It's it's so tall and top heavy. It's got uh, diamond encrusted swimming pools. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, oh boy, yeah. When you go upside them, it's it's hard to believe that they can actually stay upright. They seem so tall. Yeah, but you take the power away from a boat like that, and the luxury <laughs> subsides. <laughs> In the most alarming way that you could imagine, and uh, they can't flush the toilet. They got no run of water. Oh no, uh, they, they have they have uh, generators going. I'm pretty sure they can flush. No, the they have emergency uh, emergency supply. No, they're not flushing toilets. They're uh, uh, people are sleeping on deck and and uh, Whoa, you know boy. are claiming that they're in danger of their lives. They can't do like cell phone. Out, isn't it? No cell. Oh, <laughs> that's what I always say. Uh, boating is is uh, you know it's just camping on the water, and it's pretty easy camping yachting when you get right down to it, but. I'm telling you, when the uh, power goes off on them big boats, uh, wow. It doesn't matter how opulent they are at all. So uh, kind of an interesting side note. Okay. Well, a quick throw in a quick reminder, too, that our phone lines for getting on to Boat Talk are not working right now. If you have any questions or comments for Boat Talk, use the email. Just go to weru.org and um, send any questions you might have to, to Boat Talk, and we'll, we'll get it on that way. Now, having no phones and no backup material here, we are not phased at all um, because we have an excellent guest this morning. David, you want to pull that microphone right close. You can't be too close to the microphone. Okay. Yeah. So uh, we have David Moses Bridges in this morning. Uh, David is a birch bark canoe builder. And I have been uh, studying up on birch bark canoes and becoming uh, just extraordinarily impressed by them. And uh, we were talking just for a few minutes before the show here, and I don't imagine we'll have a hard time filling the hour talking to David. I don't think so. No. Um, we'll st- let's just start with the, the standard boat talk question we ask everybody is, uh, what happened to you as a youngster that messed you up so hard about boats, David? Well, uh, long story, short story, uh, my great-grandfather, Sylvester Gabriel, was the last of the old-time builders. Uh, he, it, For him, it was a... a thousands of generations of tradition and of necessity he learned to be a, a bark worker when he was younger uh, made canoes around the 1920s he had for economic reasons he had to shift into other lines of work because the factory built canoes were coming in old town uh, chestnut canoes uh, and the need for a guide and uh, a birch bark canoe were not as great as when he was younger so uh, he made the switch, but when I was younger, he lived in our home. He was my caretaker while my nice. mom and dad had to work. Lucky. So, yeah, that was daycare, and uh, it was wonderful. We used to talk a lot, and I used to read to him, and I was reading him um, Stuart Little one time as I was learning to read. I was about six years old, and, you know, he has a little birch bark canoe in there, and uh, yep. and he just said sort of... Uh, off the cuff, yeah, I used to make birch bark canoes, and yeah. that's where it all began. <laughs> I yeah. asked him to show me. He said he would. Uh, you know, he was an elder. I was pretty young, so we never got to make one together. But when he passed away, he left me his old tools, his crooked knife, uh, his awl, and his barking knife. And that's where the desire was born, and over the course of my uh, life, that's just all I really wanted to do. 
As you say, that is a long story because we're talking heritage, and, yeah. and you are a Passamaquoddy. Yes, I am. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And we're talking a heritage of thousands of years, let alone the heritage from your from your grandfather. Yes, that's yeah. so cool. Yeah. You didn't have a chance, did you? Didn't have a chance. No, I was <laughs> thrown right into it to the to the to the family history. And again, how lucky and how lucky to have a, a kid to come along. Yeah to scoop it up it's true uh, you know I, I i didn't realize just how unique he was at the time uh later in life as i i learned that birch bark canoe was a really uh threatened art form uh it really struck me just how valuable it was to have him around how important he was uh to my life and to the continuation of birch bark canoe building so i was lucky to have him too cool Let's go back to uh, the history of birch bark canoes. You okay. were talking before off the air. You're saying back at least 3,500 years? Around 3,500 years is where the archaeologists speculate that birch bark canoe building was developed in, in New England, in, in Maine, really, I should say. Uh, that's based on the lithic record, uh, the stone tools. Uh, around that time, gouges, adzes, and heavy woodworking tools stopped turning up in the archaeological record. And the archaeologists figure that this is when uh, the indigenous people stopped making dugout canoes and started making bark canoes, because you don't need any of these heavy woodworking tools to make a birch bark canoe. Um, the cedar material is hand split. Everything can be everything that needs to be shaped can be shaved with either a stone knife or a, a split beaver tooth. But you can get the splits right down pretty close to the, you know, the finished dimension. So that's where the archaeologists put it. But <clears throat> excuse me, I've been doing some research on bark canoes across the whole boreal range. Uh, Siberian boats. Uh, they're using birch bark over there. They're using cedar and spruce root. Same construction techniques, really, different mm -hmm. hull forms. Uh, so I'm investigating an earlier connection. But uh, It would seem logical in Siberia especially. That, yeah. You know, it yeah. would be very old. One of the things I think is very interesting about the Siberian canoe, as a quick aside here, is uh, being a, a, a an animal lover, is that those canoes are rigged up for a, be able to have a dog harness so they can use them as sleds also. Okay, that, perfect. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. Yeah. It's interesting, though, um, the worldwide context, let alone just the local cultural context. Absolutely. There's water everywhere. Yeah. Most of this planet's water. And where we live, there's a lot of lakes, and, and same as Siberia, a lot of the northern uh, yeah. uh, end of the planet's, uh, uh, like I say, uh, yeah. pretty wet. And you've got to have something. Got to. I just read a book about the uh, Minnesota Sioux uprising back in the 1860s. Okay. And the Minnesota Sioux were woodland Sioux. They weren't, they weren't the prairie Sioux. Yeah. And they lived in a land full of lakes. They never mentioned they lived on the river. They never mentioned in that book what they did about boats and about kill me. Mm -hmm. um, that was my first question. How'd they get up and down the river? How'd they get around the lakes and stuff? Um, but again, uh, the need is there. So universally, it was solved in a pretty similar way in a lot of different places. True. Uh, all of the tribal groups in the Boreal Range had uh, some form of watercraft because there's, there's lakes, rivers, tributaries, uh, in our case, ocean. All of those boats were adapted for their specific environment. You know, they... Uh, uh, here we have big ocean canoes, you know, up to 21, 22 feet in length for getting to the outer islands out here. That's that's big water. So you want a big boat. Uh, you know, in the uh, up and around the, the Great Slave Lake, uh, 
Great Slave Lake region, the Athabascans, they had canoes that were specialized to their particular environment. Uh, different hull forms, but really basically the same construction material, birch bark, spruce root, and cedar. Now, um, where, there is no, uh, where there is no bark, they also use skin sometimes, the uh, 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 Inuits, for instance. Yeah. Didn't have any trees. Yeah. They made out pretty well anyway. And, and that, it's a similar solution to the same problem. True. And that, that sort of leads into some of the research that I've been doing on the framed boat itself. You know, you work with the material that you have. If, you're, if you have big walrus hides, you use walrus hide. If you have seal skin, you use seal skin. If you have bark, you use bark. So I think that connection that we were talking about earlier with uh, the Asian canoes, you know, the Siberian canoes and... Uh, you know, there's a connection that just goes back to the framed boat itself. And people made use of what was available to them. I think as soon as they got their hands on some birch bark, they quickly discovered how versatile, pliable, and available it is. And it's waterproof. So they immediately started using that because that is what was available. But it, it's, a, it's an interesting question, you know, follow, tracing back the, the history of the framed boat. Yep, and uh, we will get into construction in uh, uh, due course here. But, um, again, we're talking about materials. Uh, you've got uh, hides, you've got bark, and different kinds of bark as well. True. Um, we think of birch bark canoes, but there are also spruce bark canoes. Spruce bark canoes, yeah. It's a little rougher. Uh, they were temporary boats. Uh, here with the Wabanaki people, moose hide canoes were made to, uh, you know, again, for temporary use. Pretty much biodegrading right away, though. Biodegradable, yeah, you could make a pair of shoes out of them when you were done with the canoe, so. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, the spruce bark canoes probably were a little faster because they had more knots in them. There he is with those ponies. He is the pony one. (laughs) And uh, you you can never, I mean, you just have to have a certain kind of brain to have that stuff come through. Right. It took me me a few seconds of lag time, but I do. And we we like him anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I'll get my paddling later. Yeah, we are doing boat talk this morning on the community radio WERU, and we got David Moses Bridges and uh, Mike Joyce Allen Sprague co-hosts here. And uh, we are talking about birch bark canoes, which uh, I'm, uh, more I learn about them, more and more I am impressed. We also got to mention that it's a pledge week here, and if you like and support uh, this sort of thing, perhaps you could give a call and make it real with money. One eight hundred six four three six two seven three is the telephone pledge line here, which is the only line that's working. There is no call in line at the present time but we still got that flashing light going the call in line is actually by email today if you can do that the email address is info at weru.org info at weru.org david i'm a i'm a boat builder you know i got, I got some skills and uh i've been a big fan of the woods my entire life i also got some skills but you send me off into the woods uh w- literally without even a, a knife uh, or even give me a knife, give me my full toolkit. I don't think I would have thought up the birch canoe or, or be able to, uh, you know, pull one off. Yeah. Um, pretty interesting, uh, like I say, uh, uh, way that that's all developed. Uh, ra- uh, you know, possibly a raft, a dugout. Let's talk about dugouts for a minute. Yeah. Um, you take a log and you uh, hollow it out. Mm-hmm. Sounds easy, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, well, like I say, we don't have any yet. <laughs> we don't have any power tools, so, uh, or maybe even a, a metal edge tool. 
Uh, they used to make dugouts uh, with fire as well, and I just read uh, control the fire with wet clay. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But then you have a hollow log, and it's got all the uh, uh, dynamic stability of a log. They tend to roll over. It weren't, weren't much for boats. But, uh, you know, as uh, I was reading also, you got people out in the ocean spearfishing out of them, standing up, too, so they, they figured out how to handle them. But yeah. uh, they probably paid the price yeah. and, uh, you know, never never the greatest solution. So we come up with these birch canoes. And uh, uh, the other thing that's fascinating to me is how they're built. They're yeah. built right side up. And the skin goes on first. Now, yeah. a boat builder builds things upside down, and we build the frame, and then we sheathe it. Yes. So totally backwards, but again, just outstanding, just uh, stunning technology to me. It is. Uh, the birch bark itself is actually the main structural member. It's, uh, you know, you build a birch bark envelope uh, with an in-whale, you know, the elliptical frame, uh, and, and then you stuff it full of framing. And the birch bark has an, a certain amount of elasticity to it. So you, you jam in those frames. You know, they're wedged in under. There's a bevel on the inside, uh, on the bottom inside of the in-whale assembly. And uh, you jam those frames in under there. You stretch that bark out. And it puts pressure that holds the frames in place, stretches out that bark, gives it its shape. The frames are all pre-bent beforehand. Uh, so you get the hull form that you want. And it's pretty amazing, you know, wooden pegs to hold it together and spruce roots. I should mention at this point, too, also for you people who uh, have availability to the Internet, you can go to the Boat Talk Facebook page and see um, lots of pictures that David has taken of the process of the canoe boat building and sort of visualize while we talk along here on that. Uh, we sort of kind of jumped into the middle of the process, really, I think, as far as... Uh, construction goes first yeah i was gonna say let's build a canoe we, yeah, let's, yeah. first let's, we need some stuff first yeah, they're out in the woods here yeah. and saying geez i wish i had a canoe yeah well we're not going to run down to the lumber yard and pick anything up we got to go into the woods to uh to get started with the birch bark canoe all the materials are hand gathered and they really have to be because there are uh, certain specifics to the materials first of all the, the bark itself has to be uh, a full-length piece of bark, preferably. Uh, you can piece bark together, but the tradition here with the Wabanaki canoes is they are one piece of bark from end to end. And those trees are out there, but, you know, they're not jumping out at you. you got to chase them down. And uh, bark has to be an eighth-inch thick or a little bit better, but not too thick. You know, the bark can range from paper-thin to over a quarter of an inch thick. It depends on the tree. But you need a, a, a tree with, uh, you know, good circumference, 48 inches to, you know, 52 inches is preferable. You may have to add side panels at that widest point uh, at the center thwart. But it all starts with the bark. But almost as, really almost as hard to find as the bark is the cedar because the cedar is all hand split, like I was saying. So you got to have stuff that has pretty straight grain and it's not free. And the cedar's not known for that. No. <laughs> <laughs> and no. for a 21-foot canoe, uh, with Steve Kerr did a 21-foot canoe in Calus uh, last year, That's you need a 22-foot length of knot-free straight-grain cedar. Straight-grain cedar. For, for the folks who may be uh, walking through the woods next time when you see a cedar tree, you'll probably notice that the bark 
uh, the cedar will sort of spiral up around the tree. And that's actually what the grain is doing inside, too. So to find a good cedar tree, you got to find one that's got straight bark. And they're yeah. not very common. Take a look next time you're walking in the woods. Now, you really got to look for those. <laughs> and our birch tree, too, we don't want it to have a lot of branches coming out of that, that uh, 20 feet of bark we're looking for. Can't have any branches. Uh, because you wouldn't be able to peel it around the branch if there were lower branches. It has to be a straight trunk, fairly straight. Uh, it can have a little bit of uh, of a kick to it, but not a lot. Uh, but <laughs> excuse me, I get a little far from the mic. <laughs> but it has to be. You're right. It has to be a, a a tree that has focused on getting to the top of the canopy rather than throwing out lower branches. You know, like a like a tree that's in a field will. So I find a lot of great trees that are growing in in a mixed grove of spruce, birch. And, uh, you know, the spruce trees can shade a birch tree all year long, whereas the birch has its uh, summer canopy. It can throw its leaves out. But uh, they really focus their energy on just staying up above the canopy, and that's when they don't throw those lower branches. So if you can find, you know, a tree roughly... 140 to 160 years old. They're a pretty short-lived species, birch are. It's got some good girth to it that's been competing with a spruce for most of its existence. It'll be nice and straight usually and, uh, you know, have the right girth. Now, in your pictures of the construction, I noticed you uh, split the bark off the tree while it's still standing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Screw in these uh, little pegs. Is that the way... It was done also to put in little pegs and work up the split, or did you fall the tree first? Well, you can fell the tree, mm-hmm. uh, and it's uh, a lot easier if you can fell the tree. But the bark will come off, obviously, from the standing tree. Really, when you uh, when you make that cut, you know that that vertical cut. You um, at the right time of year in the summer season, the bark just wants to pop right off the tree. The bark is under pressure on the tree, so it really just wants to pop right off of there. Uh, And the reason I'm doing that really is because it's a lot of times I'm bushwhacking, looking for these trees. Uh, I'm way out in the woods, no trails, no roads, nothing like that. So it's easier to do it that way, to climb the tree, than it is to carry a chainsaw and all the gear. Hmm. Uh, It's just a little easier. Do we have answer. a question? What happens to the uh, uh, what happens to the tree standing after the bark is peeled off? Well, though? it will generate a second layer of bark. Doesn't kill the tree. Oh, Doesn't really? kill the tree if you take it at the right time of year, uh, and oh. that would be when the sap is rising. If you took it later in the year, uh, like say July or August, the trees are already cycling down at that point. They're getting ready for winter, uh, even though they're still in full bloom. But uh, it will generate a second layer of bark. And I always carry samples in my uh, in my exhibits that I do to show people second growth bark. So it's like a like a cork oak. A cork oak uh, develops over about nine years. It will develop a protective layer. Huh. I sustainable it was before sustainable was cool. Absolutely, yeah, that's very good. <laughs> yeah, uh, we need to thank. Uh, speaking of the fundraising edition of Boat Talk here this morning, one eight hundred six four three six two seven three. Need to thank Bob, who's renewed his membership from Belfast. Bob's calling from aboard his boat, Excellent. Sunrise, which is another boat talk connection we won't get into right now. Uh, I should mention, though, the boat's in the driveway. <laughs> <laughs> but he is aboard, so yeah. there. Thank you, Bob. And I also have uh, thanks to uh, Chris and Gray from Hancock, who have made an additional gift. Thank you, Chris and Gray. Yeah. 
So now we've got our uh, we've got a nice uh, uh, piece of birch bark. Yep. Uh, we found some uh, straight cedar. Yep. And uh, now w- now what do we do? Well, you got to have some roots to tie everything together. Ah, good and, point. Yeah, spruce roots are uh, readily available pretty much everywhere in Maine. Any spruce or? Well, the the white spruce I are. White spruce and red spruce and black spruce. Yeah, any of the spruces will do. And sometimes even other roots have been known to be used uh, with some of the other uh, uh, birch bark canoe building cultures. How about bittersweet? You ever tried that? I have not, Mm -hmm. no. But I'm willing to try it. Yeah, it's pretty viney. <laughs> Anybody that's ever tried to dig a post hole near a spruce tree has uh, been annoyed by the roots. But uh, yeah. the roots that we're harvesting uh, is, is uh, not really far underground. Not far at all, no. Two, three inches maybe. And if you find the right kind of ground, which is mossy ground on sandy soil, uh, for instance, in an esker or something like that, where there's nice fine sand under there, the roots are just going to grow nice and straight, up to 20 feet in length. And if there's no rocks in the ground, uh, you know, because the roots will kink around any obstruction they hit as they're traveling through the ground. But if there's nothing for them to be obstructed by, they'll just grow nice and straight. Hmm. And uh, you know, if it's mossy ground, you just peel back that moss, and there they are. And I'm making it sound easy. It's always. And again, we're uh, taking something that we're we're going to split yes a uh, a thinner, narrower piece out right, and the flexibility is just incredible, unbelievable. Yeah, they're very very flexible, and of course stable when they're dry. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you got to get the bark off them first, and you do that by boiling, boiling them for an hour or so, and that softens up the bark, and then you can just peel it right off, comes right off, and then once you uh, uh, start to split them, there's a little. I call it the heart string. It's just like a little dark line in there. And sometimes there's little branches coming off the root. But you split them in half first. And then as you do, I call it the heart split. You split out that little heart. That brings all the little branches and all the little imperfections off with it. So what you end up with is a really nice, smooth, tapered root, you know, that you, and um, just... Piece of wooden string. Piece of wooden string, yeah. And you and you carve the point right onto it as you're uh, using it with the bark. You know, you use your awl to get through the bark, but you don't have to thread it onto a needle or anything to use it. You carve a little point right on it, so it's it's effectively it's the needle and the thread. So the you, threading or using the pointy end is the is the tree end. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Too cool. I mean, yeah. again, uh, you know, how how do people figure this out? Just blows me away. Yeah. And uh, uh, what you can come up with when you look around is just fascinating. Yeah. Um, yeah. We've got uh, enough materials now. Uh, you know, we just take the birch bark and we uh, fold it up and jump in it. I mean, you know, uh, <laughs> no. how, how do we proceed now? Well, not quite that easy, but uh, really... You want to set up your building bed. Uh, the building bed could be on dirt or you could do a hard building bed because the, the way you begin construction is by building the in-whale assembly first. Uh, and that's the assembly, that's the elliptical assembly that the uh, birch bark will be lashed to. All of the lashings are lashed to the in-whale assembly. And that it, it has your five thwarts in there and it comes together at the end. That's tied with roots and that's pegged. Of course, your thwarts are maple. They're hardwood. And those are are mortised in. So it's a really firm um, assembly. Unroll your bark and you set that down right on top of it. The bark's face, uh, bark's down on the ground. Yes, bark's down. And that's why we have to have a nice, uh, smooth building bed. Nice, smooth building bed, yeah. And 
And of course, it's the when you look at a birch bark canoe, this is a misconception that some people. Oh, have. I, was, I was hoping we get to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I it's, was thinking too. It's the it's the inside of the tree that becomes the outside of the canoe. It's the outside of the hull of the canoe. So the the white shaggy side that you see when you're walking through the forest, the outside of the tree becomes the inside of the hull. And uh, because, of course, that's the rough side. That's the shaggy side. Uh, it's nice and smooth on that inside, so it makes a nice smooth hull. Mm-hmm. And uh, But anyway, you take your in-whale assembly after you've unrolled your bark, put that right on there, and then you cut your gores in. You have to cut relief gores in because you're going to fold up that flat piece of bark into a rounded... Yeah, we've got form. a rectangular piece of paper on uh, here, and when you fold it up, it's it's got to be... A, Relieve so yeah. it'll it'll pinches, come in, yeah. yeah. kind of like darts uh, in sewing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and that's what people see on the side of the canoe. That's what leads some people to think that it's made from several pieces of bark. Sometimes, but if you look at the bottom of the canoe, it's one continuous piece. Those are just the relief gores on the side, and yeah, you cut your relief gores in and you fold that bark right up around that in whale assembly, and you post it all the way to keep its shape. Of course, that in-whale has been heavily weighted. You'll see in some of the construction pictures online that they're covered with rocks or bricks or anything heavy, and it holds everything in place while you fold up that bark around the in-whale assembly. Bring the ends together to the point, and and if you can see on some of the pictures online, you can see that some of those are... Uh, uh, you know, the, the, the stem doesn't go in yet. The first thing you do after you get it folded up is you, <clears throat> excuse me, you do what's called raising the in-whale. So after you have your, um, your shape established, you take all the rocks out, you take the in-whale out, and it's inside that posted frame that you've posted into the ground, and you raise the in-whale up to its prescribed height. So if it's going to be eight inches in the center, at the center thwart, maybe at the quarter thwart, it's going to be nine and a half inches, that's what's going to give you the sweep of your shear. Mm-hmm. And and a lot of times, too, you pre-bend that shear with a little bit of boiling water so that when you're in this process of raising the in-whale, it bends up a little easier. That, to me, is also genius boat building. Now, that in-whale assembly, uh, in modern days, we'd call that a mold. Yeah. Okay? <laughs> yeah. And we might make a, a, you know, a disposable mold out of plywood and right. scrap wood and drywall screws. Yep. Um, but... To use the in-whale assembly as as the base mold yeah. and then to pick it up yep. is, just, like, say, genius. It really is. And, of course, one thing I didn't mention, uh, prior, one of the first things you want to do before you get to this process is bend your frames, your ribs. Uh, because you want to give them a week or so to to get nice and dry so, so that they keep the, You soak them first or soak boil them first. Them even, yep. This goes back to splitting. Everything's hand split and shaped. And as soon as you have all the, you know, there's roughly 46 frames in a canoe. Uh, you know, once you have them all ready, you drop them in the water for a couple of days, maybe three days. Let them get nice and saturated. Then you want to get them in some boiling water. Uh, you don't actually have to immerse them and boil the whole frame. You can actually pour boiling water over it for roughly three or four minutes, and it'll soften it up enough Hmm. um, to bend. And you bend them two at a time because there's two identical frames on either side of the center thwart. So you bend them two at a time, and you take your next set heading towards the ends, and you nest them inside the the first set that you just made. And sometimes you can nest three sets in there, and then you just taper them down. If you look on the pictures online, you'll see some pictures of that. Tie them up and uh, let them dry for 
good week or so. Bending them two at a time helps them not break. Absolutely. They reinforce yeah. each other. Yep. Um, how thick are these things? Uh, about five sixteenths of an inch thick, uh, the frames, and about <clears throat> about three inches wide. Mm-hmm. You're splitting these all out with a crooked knife, too. Yes, yeah, with a crooked knife. Huh. And you and like I was saying earlier, you could you can pretty much split them almost right to their dimension. Mm-hmm. Uh, you split a little bit thicker, and then with a crooked knife, you shape them. And of course, a crooked knife on cedar really shapes it well. It's uh, <coughs> excuse me, cedar's such great stuff. Oh, it's, it's fantastic! My yeah, all time favorite good woods. Yeah, it, it smells, smells good. good you got all those shavings all around yeah. you. And one thing I love about the birch bark canoe building process is there's no sandpaper involved with anything, so yeah. there's no <laughs> dust. <laughs> not, not my favorite subject. <laughs> Well, we gotta, we'll take a little quick break to give a, a, a shout-out and a thank you to Meredith from Penobscot, who has made an additional gift. Meredith, friend of all three of us here, and uh, she's the co-host of uh, Radioactive on Thursday afternoons, too, uh, one of the best shows here on Community, on community Radio. And uh, she called 1-800-643-6273 to support Community Radio. We're talking to David Moses Bridges this morning. He's a Passamaquoddy and a bark worker uh, and a birch bark canoe builder. And, uh, again, we have no incoming phone lines this morning. We apologize for that. But you can email us uh, a question possibly at info at weru.org. We do have one email question already, too, that I pretty near forgot to remember um, from a listener who actually is listens to podcasts when he goes to uh, work in New York City, <laughs> listens to podcasts on the subway or the, the commuter trains. And his question is, what is the shortest canoe that David makes? The shortest functional canoe that I make is 14 feet. Uh, that's And I and I work with all the uh, uh, traditional sizes that, that, you know, that the ancestors developed. 14-footer is a one-person canoe that'll hold six or 700 pounds of gear, and that's an ideal canoe for one person and some hunting gear. Uh, or It's light enough. It's about 55 pounds dry weight, so it's light enough to portage quite easily. Uh, it'll carry a good load, and it'll handle, you know, some fairly rough water. Uh, I make canoe models, too, uh, so the shortest size that I've made is four feet. But, and those are just scaled models, though. But traditionally, 14 feet is the size that you would see. 14, 16, 18, 19, uh, you know, up to 22 feet in length. Uh, of course, the bigger ones are more heavily built. The big 21-footers are more heavily built. Everything's a little bit thicker. Uh, they're ocean canoes. They have higher bows? Higher bows, yeah, because they're they're made for an ocean environment. Mm-hmm. So you want to be able to take those big seas when they come over the bows and be able to part the waters as it were we have our um uh birch bark uh birch uh out out bark outside facing up mm-hmm. which will be the inside of the canoe on a building bed yeah and we've uh, had our in whale assembly uh which is going to be the uh, thwarts at the top yeah and the uh, top rails uh, in and out of the boat um, that we've used to uh, as mold to establish the shape of the thing we've we've uh, folded the birch up and we've got the uh uh uh, ribs split out, yeah. and uh, the ribs are are just uh, they're in under spring pressure. Yeah, yeah. When you put them in, they, they're they're sprung in under pressure. Uh, you know, you cant them in, and uh, uh, the way you start that process is uh, 
you don't want to drive them home right away. For instance, when you're doing the first frame, and that's the frame right at the at the bows of the canoe, frame number one, um, you want to drive that in nice and hard so it holds things in place. Start getting your planking in behind there. But you don't want to drive it right home yet because as you put in frame number three, frame number five, frame number seven, you're putting in every other one initially. Uh, it's stretching that bark a little bit more as you go back towards the center thwart. So if you if you drove number one home, and right when you got started, by the time you got to frame number five or seven, frame number one would be falling out. So they come in and out several times as you're doing this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and again, not fastened at all, just sprung nope, in. Just and sprung in, yeah. Under, under the uh, gunnel assembly. Yep, yep. Under the in-whale, there's, a, there's a bevel the on the backside of the in-whale assembly, and they're jammed in under there. And fit in place, they're they're sprung longer than necessary, and you yes. you put them in place, and you see how tall they need to be, and you carefully cut those to length. You don't want to make them too short. They yeah, yep. Yeah, and the way you do that, <clears throat> excuse me, they are cut longer so that when you're sizing them to go into the canoe, what you're doing is you're taking that bent frame and you're putting it in uh, you know, vertically where it's going to go and hammering it down. You're wetting the bark with hot water on the outside and hammering it down, making a, a small mark, and that's where you're going to saw the frame off or cut the frame off right there. And then you cut your bevel onto the top of the frame and... And like I say, you always want to err on the big side because, like they say, you can, uh, well, measure twice and cut once. Yeah. You know? <laughs> We've uh, left out, uh, you just mentioned uh, the, uh, uh, I forget what you called it, sheathing the uh, interior planking. Yes, yeah. yeah. Uh, the boat does not just consist of the, the bark and, and the ribs. No. There's a very another important layer in there, isn't there? Yeah, you got to have that layer of planking in there because... The, uh, the orientation of the bark is, of course, the, well, for those familiar with a piece of birch bark, you see those linear lenticels on it. Uh, birch bark you can tear quite easily in one direction uh, across the tree, yeah. but you can't tear it the other way. It's ah, really point, tough yeah. that way. So, But when you're driving in the frames, you, you're driving it. If you didn't have that layer of, of sheathing there, it would just tear yes. out the bark. So um, the framing really... Uh, it, it it fills out the bark so that it's nice and tough, you know. It, um, and interior of the boat protects the it protects. The, you know, we put uh, floors and yeah, dinghies absolutely. to protect the the bottom of the boat. Yeah, and uh, make a working surface. So yep. from outside to inside, we have the bark. We have the sheathing, and yep. then we have the ribs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you got quite a bit of hull thickness there, all told. I mean, if you yeah, know, you if do. You, if you're working with, uh, you know, uh, eighth inch or better of bark and three sixteenth of planking, and then you've got you know your five sixteenth frames, you're getting right up there. Those frames are pretty. There's about an inch spacing between each frame when everything's home. So you got quite a bit of hull there. They're pretty yeah. rugged. And they're not held in with silicon bronze screws or nope. Sikaflex or fifty two hundred or any of that. None they're of just that floating in you, there. You got. Oh, <laughs> Oh my God. Well, we'll get to that because we haven't used our canoe. We'll get to that part in, in a few minutes. Okay. But anyway, just fascinating. Now, um, we've uh, got the bark uh, folded up around the, the top of the thing. Uh, now we are getting to fastening time, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that all co- before the frames even go in, that you're you're making that birch bark envelope. You uh, w- the next thing you do after you raise the in whale is you start uh, your lashings and your and pegging as well with maple pegs, hardwood pegs. So w- after you get that uh, in whale raised and your birch bark's folded up, you take a piece that's called the out whale, and that goes on the outside of the bark. 
at that very top rail. So the bark is sandwiched between the in whale and the out whale. And then you're lashing around that whole assembly and pegging through that uh, between every lashing. You peg from the inside out, outside in? Peg or? from the outside in, mm-hmm. yep. And um, that, you know, once you get that done, all of your, you know, 88 or so lashings, that is really holding it tight. Now you can take it out of, you can take the stakes up and it's going to stay in the shape that it's in. You can start to move the boat around a little bit. It doesn't have to stay right in that, um, you know, that staked up building bed anymore. Um, and then you want to put the stems in. So... Doesn't the bark want to rip when you uh, put a hole through it and then pull on it with a, a wooden piece of string? You're, well, you're lashing. That goes back to selection of materials. It's got to be good stuff. Yeah, you got to have good, thick, tough stuff. Uh, you know that uh, that is going to stand up to to what you're about to put it through. You know, if it was uh, weak bark and it wanted to split quite easily, you'd be having problems all through. So that goes back to selection. And that's why whenever I'm out gathering, I, I test every tree. You know, I take a little piece off the bottom and I'll twist it and I'll mangle it and I'll see what kind of characteristics it has just to make sure that it's going to be tough stuff. And and then if, if I determine uh, that it's all good, I'll, I'll climb that tree and I'll, I'll take that bark. So, the uh, lashings are not continuous from bow to stern either, because no. they uh, are a couple lashings, a space for the top of the rib, a couple yeah. lashings, space for the top of yep. the rib. It's actually one lashing, and then a rib, and then a lashing, and then a rib. So between every lashing space, you have that's where a rib is coming up inside, and uh, so and then there's a peg right through there too. So it's. After it's all said and done, it's a pretty pretty tough assembly. You know, you have several pegs in there, uh, you know, 88 or so lashings holding it all together. You got your, your mortised uh, maple thwarts, you know, through your cedar. It's, uh, it's a pretty tough assembly. But flexible. And flexible. Flexible, yeah, yeah that's the cool part. We um, want to protect these lashings, too, and, and you put a cap uh a rail cap basically on top of the the in whale and the out whale yes yeah. yeah yep and that just gives you more longitudinal support but it also protects the lashings from from being hit uh and broken uh it's uh you know it's it's really as far as longitudinal support goes you've got your out whale your cap and your uh, and your in whale assembly all that tied together gives you quite a bit of longitudinal support with our inner planking there, we don't even get to see the inside of this birch bark in our birch bark canoe, don't do we? And no, and again, hidden. the uh, uh, you know the the kind that's been uh, passed down to us, the uh, aluminum canoe painted with a birch bark pattern is just so patently uh, ridiculous. Yeah, <laughs> because uh, that wasn't the orientation of the bark to begin with, and and. Uh, kind of silly beyond belief when you understand how these things are built yeah but kind of a nice compliment at the same time yeah. you know kind of <laughs> sideways anyway well it slays me sometimes when i see hollywood films and they have bark canoes in there but you can tell that they're not bark canoes because they're uh well they're they're fiberglass canoes and they're painted to look like birch bark and sometimes you'll see that white side out mm-hmm. knots yeah knots and all yeah it just slays me um the uh 
inner bark, which is the outside of the boat, has uh, depth and, and uh, you know, a, a consistency to it. And you can etch that and make designs on the outside as well, which you is can, pretty cool. You can, yeah. And that's winter bark that you're doing that on. There's really uh, there's two seasons to gather birch bark in. Uh, and the trees are in winter bark phase for all but about three months of the year. Uh, it's in summer bark phase for, you know, late May, June, July. Uh, and into early August. But when it's in winter bark phase, it, it comes when you peel the bark off the tree, it's it's clinging to a thin rind of the inner bark. And that dries to a dark chocolatey brown. And if you wet that, scratch that away, it exposes that golden brown summer bark color that's underneath. And that's where you get your winter bark etching designs that you see on the canoes. It fascinates me that they took the trouble to uh, decorate these yeah. things. Well, you got to pretty things up, you know. Yeah, so. and <laughs> let's put them in context, too. Um, Owning a canoe would be kind of vital to get in around, um, but again, a major possession for somebody. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah major possession, and uh, not everybody can build a canoe either, so the people who can are probably pretty special. Yeah, yeah. There would be a master builder, I think, in every community, and you know, I was, I was reading uh, Samuel Champlain's journals. Uh, recently, and he, you know, he was up in Huron country, up in uh, St. Lawrence. That region. man got around. He got around. Yeah, and, and he, he got around with the local help. knowledge. He did. Yeah, and he kept trying to borrow a birch bark canoe or buy a birch bark canoe off the native people that he was with, and they wouldn't sell him one, and they wouldn't loan him one either without <laughs> its own guide that came with it because <laughs> they wanted it to come back. <laughs> it, it, it just speaks to the value that those that those vessels had for the for the native people. They were really, really something important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just reading about uh, Arnold going to Quebec through yeah. the woods, too, and they made those bad bateaus uh, yeah. and Gardner there. And, and the story about those bateaus, they had no nails, so they just left them out. Yeah. Uh, the greenwood bateaus, they fell apart pretty bad. But uh, after they got uh, over to the uh, Canadian side of the height of land there, um, uh, one of the officers found a birch canoe. Yeah. And he had the best ride in the whole fleet and was able to get down the Chaudrier River and and until uh, the thing went to pieces in, in the uh in the rapids there he had the best ride of yeah. anybody going and was pretty proud of that canoe. Yeah, well I think the outcome of that expedition might have turned out differently if they hadn't expended all their energy dragging those bateaus up and over the height of land. You know, they, yeah. <laughs> I think they were all beat up by the time they got there. Let's go back to Samuel de Champlain, too. He uh, comes in the eastern way here, uh, down the the south end of Mount Desert Island, yep. and a uh, canoe with natives comes out to him. Yeah. And uh, they stand off uh, more than a musket shot. They, these boys have learned a couple of things. Yep. And... Uh, Samuel Champlain, uh, any of the other explorers, going to watch Longboat and come to see these people and talk to them. Well, um, eight guys in a longboat can't catch three guys in a canoe. No way. Yeah, and then uh, <laughs> the guys in the canoe are facing where they're going. The yep. guys in the longboat are facing backwards, looking over their shoulders. Yeah. And when they get to shore, the three guys in the canoe pick it up and run into the woods. Absolutely. And the guys in the longboat <laughs> barely get it up onto the beach. You got and it. And they were impressed. Yeah. As boat as boat people, they were very impressed with the native craft. And that's the beauty of a bark canoe. You know, it's, it's quick on the water. Uh, it's versatile. It can handle heavy seas. When you get to land or you need to cross a, a, a piece of land, you just pick it up, you know, carry it. They weigh, even the 21-footers weigh in at around 100, maybe just over 100 pounds. So and, not heavy. And mm-hmm. Captain Dearborn with Arnold there, um, he found one stashed in the woods. Uh, people would, would leave them at one end of a portage, yeah. for instance, and, and uh, stash them here and there. But, again, a very valuable item 
personally and culturally. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, for the Wabanaki people, it really expanded their possibilities here in, you know, what can be a, a pretty harsh land sometimes. You know, we have, uh, you know, a lot of winter. Uh, you want to make sure you have all your food put away for this for this long period of winter. And with a birch bark canoe, your, your hunting range has expanded greatly. Uh, you're able to access the outer islands out here. You can get the bird's eggs. There's, you know, there's... Uh, uh, other food sources out there. So it really was an important part of the Wabanaki existence here. They say this, well, I can't quite get my head around this as a boat deliverer, that uh, the local natives knew the way from here to Cape Cod just as well as I do delivering boats. Yeah. And they did that in birch canoes. Mm-hmm. That blows me away. Yeah. And, of course, they, they, they kept it on the inside as often as they could. You oh, know, course, they would portage yeah. around the, the bigger... Uh, you know, the bigger peninsulas. They would portage around that. For instance, if you wanted to get from Passamaquoddy Bay to Machias Bay, you don't have to go around the outside through the Narrows and down the Bold Coast. You can take it all the way up into the top of Cobscook Bay, portage over to Orange Lake, over to Rocky Lake, the second Rocky Lake, into the Machias River, and then come down that way. Yeah. And then you haven't been out there in the big water and, you know... Mm. A little safer. Take no chances, get in no trouble. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We are doing boat talk this morning. The clock in here is not quite right, but the uh, flashing light has stopped, thank you. And uh, we were talking to David Moses Bridges about uh, uh, birch canoe building and uh, apparently running out of time here. Got 10 minutes. Guess we we got 10 minutes minutes left, but uh, such a rich subject. Yeah. Um, I'm a little panicked that there's so much stuff we're going to leave out here. Well, we Um, still have room for questions, too, if you'd like to email them to info at WERU. Dot org. Um, culturally, as you say, uh, your grandfather yeah. was a builder, but uh, kind of run out of work there for a little while. Uh, yep. The uh, wood canvas canoe come along, which is kind of a you know very very analogous when you get right down to it. Yeah. And looking at an article by Henry Valancourt here, another builder, uh, famous uh, builder in the Wooden Boat magazine about uh, people up in the Gulf of St. Lawrence, and they are using canvas, yeah. but building in the same way that we've described, mm-hmm. just, uh, you know, uh, bark not as available. Yeah, and that was actually practiced here as well with, with Penobscot and Passamaquoddy people as well, uh, latter end of the 18th century. Uh, if they couldn't get a hold of a good piece of bark, same building process, but you just use canvas to cover it. Um, so that was practiced here as well. But really, uh, you know, at that time when my grandfather was uh, had to make that career change, it was, you know, you, Wabanaki people were moving into the market economy, uh, sort of being forced into the market economy. And he was born in 1886, uh, had learned his craft from his elders uh, and practiced his craft as a guide and a birch bark canoe builder for several years. But... You know, at that time in Maine, you're getting railroads and road systems up into the interior now. You have uh, the factory-built canoes like Old Town mass-producing them. So the need for a guide and a canoe just started to diminish. And he really just had to take a look and, you know, see what he had to do for his family. So he, uh, he's, he stopped being an active builder at that time but continued to make birch bark baskets. Uh, He was one of the primary sources for the Abbey Museum publication, Uses of Birch Bark in the Northeast. He worked with with two anthropologists, uh, just recording what in the 1940s was considered to be a dying dying art form. Mm -hmm. And he was one of the last practitioners of that. Speaking of uh, keeping the dying art form uh, alive, we got to uh, talk about... uh 
Mr. Adney. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic guy. Explain, explain who we're talking about. Well, Edwin Tapp and Adney, he was just an obsessive guy who got interested in the bark canoe around the 1890s. Even then, he noticed that it was an art form that was diminishing, and he just started recording the processes. He started working. He was in Woodstock, New Brunswick. That's where his wife was from. So he started working with with, uh, with Peter Joe, uh, a birch bark canoe builder from there. And he was one of these guys who, once he got interested in something, he wanted to know everything about it. So he just started recording detail. Uh, he took copious notes. He studied the Wabanaki canoe building styles, and then he started looking at uh, other birch bark canoe building cultures all across North America. He looked at the birch bark canoe cultures in uh, in Siberia and then the uh, the Ainus of Hokkaido, the northern island of Japan. He looked at bark boats in the in South America. So he really, really did his homework, and he spent years, 50 years plus, collecting information. Uh, he died in 1951, and his... Uh, his notes were, were put together by Howard Chappelle. Notes, oh. drawings, and he made models. Models, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he has an incredible collection. There's about 120 scaled models at the Mariner's Museum in Newport News, Virginia. Just an incredible collection. Well, before we run out of time, we should, speaking of models on, and collections, mention the Abbey Museum where you have a full-size canoe. Well, that's actually Steve Kayard's canoe. Is it? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yes, at right uh, right now at the Abbey Museum, uh, just last week the Maine Guides uh, exhibition has. This is opened. Abbey Museum in Bar Harbor. In Bar down, Harbor, down, yes. Down Bar Harbor. Yeah, and they're uh, and they're open this winter. They're open Thursday to Saturday, ten to four. Uh, it's a wonderful exhibit. There's a beautiful sixteen foot canoe in there that's uh, that's newly built, less than ten years old, uh, and then there's an old. Uh, uh, St. Francis canoe in there, probably 100 years plus. Yeah, so. and the details on that are something you really need to go, walk right up and take a look at. The, oh, yeah. The craftsmanship yeah. Is, is great. Yeah, and, and that's the great thing about uh, about this exhibit and, and the Abbey Museum is you can you can get right up close. There, The staff there are knowledgeable, and they'll be able to answer questions, detailed questions that people have. So I urge everybody, you know, first chance they get to jump in there. So if somebody wanted to uh, go to a workshop this summer and make a canoe, what would they do? Well, keep an eye on the Abbey website because things are developing, and it looks like we'll be doing a project at the Abbey in August, a full-size canoe project. But I would contact Steve Kayard at stevekayard.com. He's doing a birch bark canoe building workshop at his place in Wellington, Maine, uh, from July 15th to the 26th, and uh, and they're going to... They're going to put together a full-size canoe, a 16-footer, I believe. Better spell Steve Kayard. Steve Kayard is S-T-E-V-E-C-A-Y-A-R-D.com. So, and, 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 you know, Steve is the guy that I learned how to build canoes from. He's a fantastic builder. You know, I, I never was able to work with my grandfather, unfortunately, because he was too old. But as I went through life, uh, you know, playing around with bark and I went to the boat building school so that I could learn how to the boat building school in eSports so that I could learn how to read the the lines plans in the Adney book I didn't understand them um, I uh, you know when it comes time to get in the woods and actually start doing that it's really important to work with an individual and and I stumbled across Steve and uh, we've been working together ever since. He's a wonderful maker. So. Well, that's how knowledge gets passed down yeah. until now we're in the Internet and book age. Yeah. And again, Adney, uh, this, there's an Adney book, yeah. which is just fascinating. Yeah, 
The Bark got, Canoes and Skin Boats of North America. It's a Smithsonian publication. Wooden Boat Magazine has some uh, birch bark canoe things. I've got the uh, Adney Collection uh, issue here. Uh, Wooden Boat 169 from uh, uh, November, December 2002, for instance. Um, you can Google birch bark canoe. Um, yeah. My friend Gray... Uh, and Chris from Hancock, uh, give me this book here, uh, John McPhee, who is a great writer canoe, yeah. of uh, uh, different people doing different things, The Survival of the Bark Canoe about Henry Valancourt uh, building, and then uh, using these canoes oh, as yeah. well. Yeah. And uh, what I loved is I went up towards the Allagash there, and the ranger come out, and he'd, ne- he'd seen a lot of canoes. He'd never seen any of those. Yeah. And they draw people they like do. flies. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I do uh, demonstrations at Jordan Pond House for the National Park Service for Acadia National Park, and I just put a canoe on the lawn, and it's it just draws people from, from all over. They uh, They see that canoe, and... The first question is, is that real? Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> it's real. Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's a pretty rare thing to see. Now, let's talk about business. How's demand? Uh, you you do bark work, uh, I baskets, do, I do and bark canoes, work. Any, anything for a, you know, anything for a buck, Daryl. Yeah, well, and it's it's always year to year, but this year the canoe business is booming. Uh, and this is great. Who uh, wants one? Well, uh, a lot of work with museums. Uh, uh, I'm looking at a restoration project with the Berkshire Museum. Uh, Frank Goldsmith Speck, who is a very well-known ethnologist, uh, it was his canoe. Uh, it's been in this collection at the Berkshire Museum for some time now, so... Um, but yeah, a lot of etched winter bark baskets, a lot of canoe models, the four footers. Uh, you know, p- people with a good eye want them, I guess. So. <laughs> Too cool. Uh, we are talking to David Moses Bridges this morning, doing boat talk. And again, uh, sorry the phones weren't working, but we. Uh, I'm just panicked. We've talked to you for the rest of the day about this uh, yeah. very easily, and <laughs> and you know, see how we do boat talk. We don't come in with a script or questions or anything. We yeah. just. Uh, you know, think about things and then talk with people. Yeah. And just absolutely fascinating. Good. Yeah. If anybody has any questions, you know, and they want to put them on the Facebook, uh, you know, the Boat Talk Facebook page, I'll, I'll do my best to answer them if they have some specifics. That's the uh, uh, thing that we need to mention, too, without fail. How does anybody get a hold of you, David? Well, uh, I don't have a website or anything like that. Because uh, here we are. <laughs> I, I emailed Henry Valancourt yesterday, okay? And I, I had to ask the lady in the library, what's that thing, jumbo shrimp? Uh, oxymoron, yeah. Yeah. So I'm emailing somebody about a birch bark canoe. Yeah. Uh, just, wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's true. It's kind of cool if you think about it. Yeah. But uh, no no Facebook page, David? Come on, catch up. I do have a Facebook page, yeah, but I hardly ever look at it. Yeah, oh, me yeah. neither. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I do every once in a while. Doesn't do Yeah, before. if anybody just put my David Moses Bridges. I use my full name. Yeah. Uh, just Facebook me, and uh, yeah, they can contact me through that. I suppose that's a good way to get in contact me because I'm really uh, all the work I'm doing is all just coming from word of mouth now, and just somehow trickles back to me. But I, I should get hip with the modern age, I suppose. Yeah. Nice. Uh, the other thing we got to get in about the uh, birch canoes is. Uh, Let's say we're on a trip and yep. we've got a wood canvas canoe and we got a birch canoe and we're running some uh, you know rocky stuff. Yeah. Um, there's a very good possibility that the birch canoe will come out of that better 
than the uh, allegedly better, you know, more modern canoe because yeah. it's more flexible. It's more flexible and it's tougher. Yeah. You know, uh, and the thing about those uh, cedar canvas canoes too is they're, they're sawn frames sometimes. So they're, you know, they, they, they machine those frames. And so, they break. And they break. Yeah. Because yeah, you saw across the grain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. And the birch canoe is also repairable. If you got a hole in it, you go find some spruce pitch. Oh, yeah. Find and you want to put some animal fat in that because yeah. spruce pitch is too brittle without the fat. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Just the right mix in that. <laughs> Yeah. And then okay. you find some spruce root and you sew on a patch and yep. you goop her up. And now you're off. You're back in business. You got it. Unbelievable <laughs> technology that, again, uh, if we're waiting on me, we wouldn't have any of that stuff okay. yet. But <laughs> but we honor the uh, tradition and uh, are so proud to uh, know you're passing it on like that. Yeah, well, it's great to be here and talk yeah. about it. You know. Thank you, David Moses Bridges. The, the hour has sailed right by. Time to make room for Rich Hillsinger coming in next with On the Wing. For Boat Talk, made possible in part by Gamble & Hunter Sailmakers, making sales for classic boats, cruising boats, and the main windjammers for 30 years. Near the harbor in Camden, gambleandhunter.net. Support for Boat Talk also comes from Windward Passage, a co-ed program providing Maine's middle and high school students ages 12 to 18 with opportunities to experience traditional sailing along the coast of Maine. More information at www.windwardpassage.org. Windward Passage is affiliated with Sail Maine, a nonprofit organization. 